Hi, this is Sean Benson from Harvest Church in Warrensburg, Missouri. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. For more resources, log on to harvestwarrensburg.com. So we're, we're still rolling around in our uh, all-sufficiency of the cross. This, I don't know, this may be the, the last of this segment, this core value segment. You know, and if you, do, if you don't know by now, you should know that you know, it's kind of, I mean, I get some ideas, but it's often week by week. I think the Lord likes to keep me dependent upon him. What do you think? You know, so, so I kind of say, I, I don't know, maybe this is it, maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe there's some more that he'll stir in our hearts, you know, as we continue from here. You know, but, but today we definitely want to kind of hit that again. And it's a, it's a little bit of a different topic. And largely the reason for the topic this morning is, one, because it's included uh, in the cross and the benefits package. But two, uh, I'm addressing this topic this morning because it's a real uh, hmm, a hot button in our culture. <laughs> and without further ado, how many of you know the Southern Baptists just made a big decision uh, as a denomination, and God bless the Southern Baptists, they're amazing. And they made a huge decision to exclude women from all facets of ministry within the churches that claim that denomination. Anybody hear that news? Oh, well, gosh. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a hot spot. It's kind of a big deal right now. So now you know. Uh, it's actually, it's such a big deal you know, that they have, uh, in effect, they said, if I understand it correctly, you know, you need to fire those women or leave the denomination. You know, so it's pretty serious, pretty serious deal. Uh, and as a result of that, they lost actually two of their largest churches. Uh, two of the two of the mega churches in the United States were Southern Baptist churches, to include Rick Warren's church. You maybe have read one of his books. You know, uh, so they just stepped out of the Southern Baptist conference because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't bow to that, you know, to that dictate from the denomination. You know, and so I just thought I would speak to that a little bit this morning, and it might be a, an unconventional way to go after it. You know, but let me just first say this: uh, I, I applaud the Southern Baptists. I think they're they're making the right decision, and, and the reason I believe that is because if they are, if that is their conviction, if they believe that the scriptures disqualify women from ministry from all kinds of ministry. Uh, and they're now willing to stick their neck out on that belief at the sacrifice of two of the highest tithing churches in their denomination, plus countless other churches who inevitably will fall as well, uh, who fall out of the denomination as well. You know, I, I applaud them because it would seem to me from a very remote perspective on the outside looking in that they're standing on what they believe the scripture says at their own expense, right? And, and the, the Bible, here's the thing about the Bible, it's interesting because it seems to allow for a divergence of opinion. You know, it, it's, it's the most uh, satisfying scripture ever. I think it's the, uh, in the last of First Peter. I believe it's in the last of First Peter. Maybe it's in Second Peter, where the Apostle Peter literally says, well, we're all familiar with the Apostle Paul's writings, and boy, some of them are really hard to understand. Like, you understand, like, this is God-breathed, Holy Spirit-breathed, canonized scripture, the Word of God. And the Apostle Paul, rather, the Apostle Peter, a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, is saying, I don't know what that guy's saying half the time. <laughs> right? Now, how many of you know the God of the universe who inspired the Word of God, who breathed it, who rested upon people to write it, could have written some aspects of it more clearly if he had wanted to? Right? 
It's interesting. There's a scripture that says, in effect, it's like my emphasis, and wow, how do I say this in a way that doesn't get you guys off the rails? You know, <laughs> it basically says that you need to remain steadfast in what you believe and have reasons for what you believe, but it's not necessarily suggesting, it's suggesting that, mm, God help me. I just, I don't want you to feel like there's, there's like, listen, there's one way to interpret the Bible. We don't always get it right. There was one intent from the Holy Spirit when he breathed it on those authors, right? We don't always get it right. And Jesus is, seems to be less concerned about our getting it right than what we are. You know, and I, I wasn't going to get off on this, but like we as the body of Christ, I mean, in the social media era, all we do is, is build our theological bumper, bunker and fire missiles at people who interpret the Bible differently than what we do. You know, we have an orthodoxy. We have the basic tenets of our faith. Jesus Christ, the uncreated Son of God, died for my sins and yours, right? The, the only propitiation for our sins, Okay, you understand? Like, like there's a basic orthodoxy which any Christian church would believe in. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about building bunkers and firing missiles at people who believe something secondarily that might be a little bit differently than what we believe or how, a little different than how we interpret it. And I should say, and it shall not be, it should not be among you. Like Jesus' dying breath was that we would be one with him as he and the Father are one. And yet, what do we do as Christians? We just fire our theological missiles all over the place, you know, trying to just smash everybody who doesn't believe exactly how we believe and going so far as to say, and if you believe those things, understanding I'm talking about the Orthodox Church here, if you believe those things, then you don't even have the same Jesus you're all going to hell. How many of you know there are conservative denominations right now that believe everybody in this room is going to hell? That you've got a false Christ. How many of you know they're very wrong? Right? But it's like, so we have to be confident in what we believe. We have to have reasons for why we believe what we believe, right? Uh, but we don't do that at the exclusion of God's body. Okay, are you with me so far? <laughs> it's a tragedy of the 21st century that we bite and devour one another. It's an absolute and utter tragedy. And this is an issue that we're going to talk about today. I've never spoken from my laptop today. Oh, boy. So we may be in for it. Okay, that wasn't so bad to get to. <laughs> you know, so I'm doing it because the I don't know, lightning blew up our router and the Wi-Fi didn't work, and so I couldn't connect to the printer. And I said, good opportunity to preach my laptop. So a little grace, if you will. But the, the topic of women is one of those divisive, divisive issues in the church. You know, how many of you know for the last couple hundred years the church has actually taken the position that women are not supposed to be in the church doing ministry. You know, as a church, you may know that we believe that Jesus actually addressed this. I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. You know, and that that's wholly not true. That's why you see Pastor Misty taking the stage. And that's why we readily acknowledge and champion her as a pastor in this environment because we believe that Jesus actually came and redeemed her from the original Adamic curse. You know, again, we're going to talk about that a little, a little bit today. But this is a controversial topic. But listen, I'm just going to say this. I, I endorse what the Southern Baptists are doing. I think it shows integrity on their part. If that's what they're going to stand on, then they should take a hard line on it, and they should oust people from their denomination. Okay? Are you with me? 
So, so let's not leave from here today and go, well, my pastor preached a heck of a word on this subject and you all are a bunch of crack babies that you don't even know what you're talking about because that's what we have the tendency to do, right? We have the tendency to go, oh, he gave me some ammunition to fire from my bunker this morning at those Baptists, those heathens. You know, and then we just become the same as some of the others firing missiles at us, right? And it shall not be, it should not be among us, right? Jesus wants us to be unified. He wants us to walk in love. Okay? All right, so there, <laughs> there's your preface. Uh, well, if I can keep this thing working, we will, we will be doing in good shape. We're talking about the all-sufficiency of the cross, and the basic premise behind this core value is the question, is there anything that Jesus didn't cover? Is there anything that Jesus missed or anything that he left out when he died, was buried, and raised again on the third day? And obviously, and I've already said it, and I'll say it again, we are a church who is of the opinion that no, there's nothing that Jesus left out. He covered absolutely everything. The first Adam came in and screwed everything up. The second Adam came in and redeemed it all. He restored everything that the first Adam touched with his fall and with his sin. Everything. Now here's the problem. The original fall, it actually had an impact on women. It had an impact on women and their role in society, how men would relate to women, and ultimately, by extension, how we would relate to them in the ministry or leadership context. Okay, The fall of man had an impact on women, and I think much of what you see rolling out over the last couple hundred years in the church, and I would wager in the world, is the result literally of the curse of the fall. How many of you know women didn't even have the right to vote until just like literally a handful of years ago? I mean, we should have kept it that way, but that's just to make sure you're awake. <laughs> oh gosh, here she comes. All right, I'll, 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 mind my, I'll mind my P's and Q's a little better now that she's just, you see how immediately I said one thing and she's up here? Try, like... Shame and Christmas. Now you know it's like control in my house. You know, shame and Christmas. <laughs> yeah, we believe Jesus did something about this. Jesus had a solution to this issue. Are the Southern Baptists right? No, I don't believe they are. And while I'm not going to be able to completely unearth all of the things the New Testament says in regard to women, particularly women in leadership or women in the church, you know, I do want to go all the way back to the beginning because I believe, I believe this is really settled in Genesis, and I believe that our understanding of what happened in Genesis, i.e. Uh, with the fall and the redemption of man, you know, I, I believe our understanding, our interpretation of that massively impacts our interpretation of what the Apostle Paul said all those years later as written in the New Testament. So we have to start all the way back. So if you'll join with me, I want to look back at Genesis at the very beginning of creation, verse 26. You can see it there on the board. Then God said, let us make human, and I've added the, anything with a bracket is me adding to it, just so that you have more understanding of what the real words are in the Hebrew, Bruce, in the Hebrew. Apparently, I say in the Hebrew, I get it crossed with the Greek all the time, so don't mind me. It's just in there in another language other than English. Are we good? <laughs> <All right. So laughs> then God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Listen, did you note that? Let them, you got to hear it. 
Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over every over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. God created humans in his own image and in his image in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Okay, because it's also a hot button in our culture, and as a pastor, I feel compelled to speak to these issues. Listen, I want to start out by saying this, a bit of a rabbit trail, again, just simply because it's a hot spot, I feel like I want to address it. How many of you know God in the beginning created two genders, right? Male and female, he created them, right? Humanity is broken up into two genders, the male and the female. How many of you know they are actually distinct from one another, How many of you know it's not a fluid concept? How many of you know that it's not a construct of man as the world would try to lead you to believe, but rather it's an invention of God? Did you read it in the scriptures? In the beginning, God did what? He created them male and female. So God is actually the author of gender distinction. (laughs) It's important for us to continue to speak the truth. Because the world is trying to speak something that diverges from the plumb line of God. It is not a fluid concept. Male and female are unique and identifiable. But because both the male and the female represent individually a different facet of the nature and the character of God, the design of God, like who God is on the inside, because the male was repre- represented the, the image of God, the female represented the image of God, what I, sh- or what I want you to see is that from the very beginning, God actually made them equal. If the woman represented a part and, and, and the, the man represented a part, how many of you, both of them have a part to play? And there's, there's, no, there's no distinction here in terms of a hierarchy of authority or rule or the way that they would, uh, the way that they would operate in their authority. He's commissioning them in the very beginning to be co-equals to rule and reign with God in the earth. And in the next verse, verse 28, it continues to really push this home. Look here. It says, God blessed them. Go ahead and say that with me, just because I want to make sure you're not asleep. So God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That God has, has designed us to actually co-lead, to co-rule, to co-reign, not only with each other, but with Him. The original design was that we would come together as husband and wife, that we would replicate ourselves across the planet, and that we would rule and subdue the earth. Well, what does that mean? Well, if, if you remember the Genesis account, in the very beginning, God actually created a garden. And how many of you know that like, that thing was absolutely stunning? Like we've got a beautiful botanical gardens down the road in, in Kingsville. I can only imagine that pales in comparison to what God created in the very beginning, right? So he created this Garden of Eden. He sections it off for man to live in, but then he commissions them together, the man and the woman, to go forth and to rule and to reign, to subdue the earth. What I think he's suggesting is that he's given them the model by which they're supposed to expand the kingdom of God on earth. He's saying, I've modeled what it looks like to bring order and beauty to planet Earth, i.e. the Garden of Eden. And I'm now commissioning you, both husband and wife, to come together, not only to multiply, but also to expand across the face of the Earth and to bring the Earth into submission. 
Now, now think about this. Since that time, we have divided the earth up by boundaries, you know, states, nations, territories, right? All across the whole world. I don't know of any territory that isn't already designated, roped off, and on a map someplace. Is that right? And, and almost all of that, despite, or, uh, in, or uh, how do I say, uh, with the exception of, you know, forest lands and things like that, which thank God we keep some of those things, you know, we have actually uh, designed it. We have brought order to it. We've brought beauty to it. We have created parks and roadways. And, and I happen to be one of those people that says, you know, I'm pretty good with a, mount, with a, with a road running through the mountains. Like, oh, you're desecrating God's earth. No, I'm subduing it. No, I get an opportunity to actually worship God in the midst of his beauty that I would have never been able to see had man not partnered in the place to bring a road to there. You understand? Like, like I, I believe that what we actually see, what has happened across the face of the planet with the, in, with the, uh, with the, uh, the building up of cities and nations is actually the original commission of God all the way back in the Garden of Eden that man would multiply across the face of the earth, ultimately ruling and then subduing it. What does it mean again to subdue it? To beautify it, to bring heaven to earth. To expand the model that God gave us in the Garden of Eden. But what we need to understand is that when we look at this and we look at God's original intent, when we rewind you know, to the beginning before sin came in and screwed it all up, we see the man and the woman actually designed by God and commissioned by him with equal authority to step into planet earth and to rule and reign. I'm reminded, even as I say that, of Chris Valentin, who says, he goes, man, I just started thinking differently about this when I realized that my daughters can go and, and lead in the nations, but she, just, but she couldn't lead in church, <laughs> in the church environment. And I'm looking back, and I see that echoed in the original sentiment and design of God as he co-commissions them to rule together to accomplish his purpose, or we could just say to bring heaven to earth. How many of you know that original commission has been reinstated? I mean, Jesus commanded us, pray like this. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many of you know that's part of the original commission given to man? And it wasn't just given to somebody with testosterone. It was given to male and female alike. Are you seeing this? If we want to understand the will of God, I'll say it again. We have to go back to before sin was introduced. The will of God unfolds perfectly in Genesis. This was his heart's desire. This was what he intended. Let's get, let's get sin out of the way. If you want to know the will of God, look back to the very origins. Look back to the beginning. And when we do so, we find out that God actually co-commissioned them to co-lead and co-rule and co-reign. And then the fall happened. And the fall touched absolutely everything, to include women, uh, to include the marriage relationship, to include the way that we would get our bread. You know, I mean, even the very earth itself would, was subject, the word says, to futility, came under the curse, the adamant curse in the very beginning, and everything was corrupted. Now, I'm not going to go into every little detail of how it was corrupted. I want to stay on point this morning, and I want to really just dig into the specific aspects of how the marriage relationship, and particularly how it relates to the female in that relationship, and ultimately the female's relationship with men, even in the world arena, how that was impacted by the fall. And the question we're wrestling with is, and did Jesus do something about it? Or is the woman forever under that original curse? 
That's the question. Of course, I'm preaching to the choir in here, but there's more than just you listening. We all right? Guys, you may not think that it affects you, but it absolutely does. Wait till I get to the end and punch you in the face. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, part B. Before we get there, I want to say this. What happened as a result of the fall? The first thing was this. It was declared by God himself that there would now forever be enmity or what would be translated as hatred between the devil and the woman. I find that fascinating. It doesn't say that it's between the devil and the man. Why in the world does he target the woman? Can I just submit to you, ladies, the devil hates your guts? The, the devil whose assignment <laughs> the, the devil whose assignment is to steal, kill, and destroy from the very beginning of the fall of man actually was on assignment to steal, kill, and destroy you above all else. There would be enmity placed between you and the devil. Why is the woman then the most persecuted uh, subgroup across the entire planet, regardless of religion, regardless of, uh, of your geographical location? It's the woman. You know, think about Muslim lands. Is a woman empowered or is she persecuted? Does she get a voice? Does she get to lead within her gifts? You know, it's not unlike the fundamental Christian church where they too believe the woman should be 10 steps behind. So the woman is the most targeted demographic on the planet. And, and it's sourced right here, all the way back in the very beginning in the fall. There, there'd be hatred between the woman and the enemy, why would the enemy go after somebody who's the weaker vessel, as we've been taught? And I don't have time to get into it. I understand that's scripture. It doesn't really mean weak in the sense of like, I'm really strong and amazing and you're weak, so I have to domineer you, by the way, just so you know. Why would the devil go after somebody who is weaker? Wouldn't the devil and all of his strategy and all of his intelligence go after somebody who has great power and influence? Wouldn't it make more sense? I mean, doesn't the Bible tell us that if we want to uh, plunder the guy's house, that we have to actually first address the strong man? Right? Isn't that what it says? So can't we, by implication, can't we just, can't we kind of, like, isn't there the implication here that the woman actually is not weak, but rather incredibly strong? And of course, we know, historically speaking, that it was through the woman that, that, uh, that we were saved, because she gave birth to the Savior, Jesus Christ, of which is prophesied here as well. I, I think the enemy absolutely knew that the woman was powerful. I mean, think about this. How long did it take Adam to cave once his wife came to him and said, hey, you know about that apple? About three seconds in, he's like, yeah, I'm good. Let's, let's do it. Like, bro, like, like, what are you even doing right now? Right? I mean, she had this whole dialogue with the devil, like this, had this whole, this whole charade with him. She walks up to her husband I have great jokes that I'm refraining from telling you all. <laughs> Let's just say that they were naked and unashamed. <laughs> okay, you people don't have a middle school mind like I do. All right, moving on. <laughs> you know, and in three, thank you, Rosie. <laughs> and, in, and in three seconds, she convinces her husband to literally crash the whole planet. You think the devil knows that woman is influential and powerful? Yeah. I think she does. 
Well, we move on. 316. Your desire, it says, of the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Hmm. See, now there's a shift happening here. Remember, this is the curse, okay? Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Here's what Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry is a historical commentator and scholar on the Bible. Here's what he has to say about this verse. It says, she is here put into a state of subjection. The whole sex, that being women, which by creation was equal with man, is for sin made inferior. The wife particularly is hereby put under the dominion of the husband. Think about that. So everything shifts in this moment. The husband and the wife who were meant to co-lead, to rule and reign, everything is shifted now in the way that they would relate to one another. There would be this domineering hierarchical setup now where the woman would become and would, would take the subservient role to the man. The man then would rule over her like she's just a piece of creation. Some scholars have come to the conclusion, and, and, and I believe they're correct, in saying that when it says that the woman's desire would be for her husband, that what was happening is that, we were, is that the curse actually inserted conflict in the marital relationship, whereby the woman would always vie for the authority that was now given exclusively to the man. So you have the man who is now ruling over her, dictating everything to her like she's an animal in creation. He's the man. He's the top dog. The buck stops with him. It's his dreams that are going to be fulfilled. It's his desires that will be fulfilled now. She is now made forever and subservient to him and his rule over her. Uh, Some commentators have gone so far as to say this was the moment that women became slaves to men. Right? So, so we see this, this divine reorientation of, of the woman under in this place, and she's forever remembering somewhere on the inside of her that she once carried that same level of authority, and so her desire being for her husband means then in this sense that she's always actually looking to usurp that authority from the man. And now you forever have the conflict between the woman who is being ruled over, but who knows that something's not right, and so she's always vying and clawing to get Get that authority back. Is this making sense? Listen, what we need to understand is that this is the curse. This, this isn't like, this isn't the, the, the blessing. Like this is the stuff that happened as a result of the influence of sin on the earth. Uh, what I want you to see is this as well. I, I want you to see that the issue, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll come back to that. I want you to see, I want to plant a seed first before I move on. I want you to see that this now subservient slave role that the woman takes is because of her sin. Okay, I need you to see that and I want you to keep that in mind. She is now being punished forever because of her sin. Keep that in mind. The question again is, did Jesus do anything about it? Has Jesus addressed this issue that women are now forever having to face? Romans chapter 5 and verse 16, it says this, 
the gift, and again, anything that you see in brackets is me adding stuff just for your own understanding. The gift, talking about the gift of redemption, this is what Jesus did on the cross for us. You know, the, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. We're talking about Adam in the very beginning. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from Adam's transgression, resulting in condemnation. Excuse me. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Verse 18. So then as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin, there resulted in condemnation to all. How many of you know when you were born, you were born a sinner? Right? Adam's failings were applied to you forever. Everyone will be born under the sin of Adam. That's what it's talking about here. The result of one man's sin went to everyone. So it resulted in condemnation to all men. Even so, wow, look at that. That's right, she knows her place. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. (laughs) <laughs> Let's try again. Verse 18. So then, as through one, as through one transgression, that's Adam's sin, resulted in condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, that's the cross, that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there resulted in justification of life to all men. So what is this saying? Simplified? I said it in the very beginning. Adam wrecked everything. Adam was a huge, fat loser who ruined our lives. I mean, it's kind of true can't retract it. But Jesus, on the other hand, absolutely redeemed everything that Adam destroyed and touched, including Adam. Right? That's what it's saying. But it says that it resulted that this redemption that Jesus levied on the planet, so what, what Adam did affected everybody, what Jesus did affected everybody, but it said that it resulted in justification. Now, it's absolutely critical that we understand what justification means or we're going to miss everything. Right? Justification is actually a legal term, and, and, and it describes this scenario. Let me describe it to you. It describes a scenario by which someone comes before the judge. Anybody ever got a speeding ticket and had to go to court? <laughs> or some other things? Right? So one comes before the judge. You plead your case before the judge. Right? He hears all of the evidence that's against you. He weighs it all. And he decides to acquit you. What does that mean? It means he says, nope, I've weighed the evidence. You're not guilty. That's what it means to be justified. Jesus Christ actually took your penalty upon himself, but he transformed you when he did it. He moved you from this place where you're like, I'm just a sinner. I'm a filthy scab. If it wasn't for Jesus, like I was just, I'm just, and I'm still a filthy sinner. He moved us from that place to this place where we stood before the judge. And because of what Jesus did, he goes, it's just, now listen to this definition, just as if you had never sinned. That's what the word means. That's what we learned in seminary. That's how we learned to remember what the word justification meant. We stood before the judge. The judge bangs his gavel and he says, you didn't do it and you don't have to, and you don't have to pay the time. Now listen, that's unfathomable. Number one, let me submit to you, you got to get that through your head because you're not the same person that you started out when you were first born. 
You're not the same person who is under sin. You, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been made just as if you have never sinned. Your identity is not steeped in sin and unrighteousness any longer. Rather, it's steeped in Him and His righteousness. That's actually who you are. And it's time this morning. I believe there's an invitation this morning for you to break out of the old patterns of behavior, the old you, to hear the truth of God over you, that that's not who you are anymore that you've been born again, that you've been fully redeemed. You have been made by the blood of Christ just as if you have never sinned before. Now, I don't know about you, but that is very, very good news. That is very good news. Now, let me ask you, does it make sense to punish someone for a crime that they didn't commit? No. If the judge pounds the gavel... And he says, not guilty, but I'm still going to throw you in jail so that you can serve your sentence. Does that make sense? Is that, is that, is that fair? Can we comprehend that? No, it doesn't make any sense. And to allow women to remain subservient under the domineering rule of the man, to keep her in a perpetual state of punishment, would be like that judge saying, not guilty, but you're still going to have to serve the time, ladies. Sorry about that. Better hope for, hope for heaven. It's going to be better there. No, no. When, when the judge swung that gavel and made you just as if you had never sinned, how many of you know he's reversing the adamant curse and he's repositioning you to rule and reign and subdue the earth alongside your male counterpart. You are no longer subservient to men. Now, when I say that, we're not, we're not questioning, and I may be again, I may be early, I just really want to say this, I think. <laughs> You're not, we're not questioning the headship of men. Like, that's not what's in question. The question is, what's the man going to do with the headship that God has given him? See, and, and the, the apostles, when Jesus was discipling them in his earthly ministry, they were, they were talking about leadership and, 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 you know, and how you lead the troops and how you command the church. And Jesus goes, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, you've got worldly concepts. He's like, in the world, the leader domineers over those people that they're leading. He goes, but among you it shall not be. Among you, among you church people, among you saved ones, you're supposed to be servant of all. So, Domineering, there's no place for domineering leadership in the body of Christ. That's actually a worldly behavior. Uh, so I want to submit to you, men, there's no place for a domineering leader in your home. Jesus has done something about it. Jesus has redeemed your wife and your relationship from the curse of Adam, from the curse of the original fall. He has restored you. Listen, I'm telling you, I've been on both sides of it, and it is way better to co-reign with somebody who's got your back, with somebody who can lead and partner, with somebody who gets empowered to come alongside of you and to complete all the areas where you lack. I can just assure you, even as a leader in the body of Christ, it's way better to have a team of people who rise up and I go, you're better at that than me, you're better at that than me, you're better at that than me, and together we're going to change the world. It's so much better to be yoked together, equally yoked with a wife who God has called to stand beside me, not under me. 
to stand beside me, to rule with me, to fill in the gaps that I have as a man, as a human being, as a father, as a pastor. To shore those up, we literally together can put 10,000 to flight. And by myself, barely get up in the morning. (laughs) Right? This is the design of God. Anything other is literally the curse. We doing good? Now, in the New Testament, when you fast forward to the New Testament, we find like so many different radical contradictions for women, you know, and all of them out of the Apostle Paul's mouth. You know, I mean, if you didn't know better, you were like, so you're against marriage and you're against women, apparently. Uh, by the way, God created both. So if you're coming away reading the scripture, feeling like the Apostle Paul is opposed to the thing that God created and blessed and called good, you're reading it wrong. Let me just throw that out there. But the Apostle Paul says some wacky stuff, like women ought to remain silent in church. And, and, and while I think it's a great idea, you know, <laughs> she, you know, he's got to make sure awake once in a while. Yeah, he says weird things like that, right? Like, you know, women ought to, ought to remain silent. If you've got a question, just ask your husbands in church. And then out of the other side of his mouth, he says stuff like, and I want to commend to you this sister who's ministering alongside me in the gospel, doing the exact same thing that I'm doing, and she's coming to you, and I want you to treat and extend to her the exact same honor that you extend to me. I'm like, wait a second, well, which is it? She's supposed to remain silent, or am I supposed to extend her honor? And it's curious that you, Apostle Paul, are working alongside women that you're now saying are doing the same ministry you're doing. So maybe there were women apostles? Like Junia, another time. So we're not going to jump into this, but I, I do want to encourage you that if you're like, wow, because we are literally just scraping the surface right now. But I believe what we're touching on now creates the seedbed or the foundation for all of the erroneous views on women in the body of Christ today. I think it starts with Genesis. It starts with this reality that the enemy wants to convince men that women are still under the curse. Right? That's the foundation of it. And when we understand the Apostle Paul's writing through that lens, we will come to the wrong conclusions. I've got a great series on this entitled Women from 2018 out on our YouTube channel. If you're interested in more, then take a peek at that. There's a lot of great stuff. Listen to this, guys. And I'm going to close with this perspective. We have seen a big chunk of history where it was the woman's job to die to self, to lay down her dreams, her aspirations, her gifts, and to, and to support the husband and to make his dreams come true. Am I wrong? No, you're supposed to stay home and deal with the kids, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to be a part of the boys club, which literally is the whole world. We're going to do amazing things, but you just, you, know, you just stay in your place. You just stay there. Has that not literally been the world? And I think it's because we don't understand this first. Listen, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Listen to this. It's commissioning husbands. It's in the context of their headship that he says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. You know how I think we usually read this? Hey, wives, uh, love your husbands and give up your lives to make them amazing. Strangely, it says exactly the opposite, guys. 
uh, husbands, lay down your life for your wife. What does that mean? It means when you go home tonight, you get to domineer and rule over her like she's a piece of creation because she's subservient to you. It's really only your desires and your dreams that get to be fulfilled, and it's her job to fulfill them for you. Well, that's what we've always believed. But it's 100% not biblical. Husbands, I want you to do what I've modeled. I want you to lay down your lives. I had a friend recently who was out in Redding, California, a pastor out there. And uh, they, they announced this on social media. And, and in fact, Misty and I called for a meeting with them because we were just kind of blown away by what had happened. And, and, and to, to make a long, you know, long story short, he basically said this. One day I woke up and I asked my wife, what can I do to make your dreams come true? And she said she wanted to move to Destin, Florida, all the way from California, you know? And she's, I mean, like, if, you, if you're a part of the, the Bethel camp, like, they're in Mecca, <laughs> right? Like, like, they're at the mothership. And, and she says, no, I want to go to Destin, Florida. I want to be on the beach, and I want to serve this other, this other ministry. And he was like, if that's what it is, then it's done. And within, within 30 days, they had picked up their entire life, and they had moved to Destin, Florida, despite the fact that the husband wasn't really all that interested in the beach life. When I heard that, I just thought, man, that is this scripture right here. That's this scripture. That's Ephesians chapter 5. That's a husband who was willing to lay down his life. Isn't that the epitome of what it looks like to deny yourself and to make her great? See, we've been taught something exactly the opposite all these years. We've been taught that the woman is under the feet of the man, subservient, that she should walk 10 steps back. And yes, all of that's changing, but listen, the world almost had to grab a hold of it and run with it to a negative place before the church started to wake up and read the Bible for what it actually says. It's not the, it's not the, the, the wife's job to lay down her life for the husband, but the husband's job to lay down his, wife, his life for the wife. That's so significant. Now listen, as I submit that to you, women, you can't go home tonight and be like, listen, all right, okay, so here's my list. This is what, you know, because the truth is we're called to submit ye to one another, right? So the way that marriage works and the reason that we're 25 years deep is because we both show up to the table 100%. All of our dreams, all of our desires, all of our gifts, all of our talents, and we both lay it all down for the other, and the Lord makes something amazing out of it. I'm not trying to empower women. And what's, the, what's the word for it? Like the weird women stuff? What, what is it? Feminism? Yeah. Is, it, is that what I'm thinking of? Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Feminist movement? Maybe that is what I'm thinking of. You know, I'm not trying to empower women such that they're like, that's right, we're going to dominate men. We're going to flip the script on this thing. No, that's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to get the biblical perspective on it that both of you are called to die. That both of you, if you want to be great in your marriage, and your relationship, you're called to actually die and serve the heck out of one another. You know, but, but, but more, than, more broadly than that, what we want to get to is the sense in which Jesus literally flipped the script on the curse of the Old Testament because there's absolutely no way that he could call men to come and to die and yet simultaneously rule over their wife like she's a piece of creation. They're inconsistent with one another. Jesus literally, in his own words, addressed the curse of Adam and reversed it through his blood. And in so doing, he empowered them. There's so much we could say about that. 
about the way that Jesus operated, about the way that he empowered them, even in his earthly ministry, the way he just changed literally everything. You know, they actually started counting women and children after Jesus, but not before. That's because with Jesus, there was massive breakthrough released over this whole issue. When ministries, when businesses, companies make everything about a boys club, they're operating from under the curse. Ladies, listen, this is what I want to get started in you. Jesus has a powerful ministry for you. He has a powerful purpose for you. He has given you gifts He has given you talents. He has given you anointing. And it is not his design that somebody would domineer over you and keep all of those things down such that you could never use them, that you could never be a steward of them. Men, you, you have been charged with empowering her, with making her dreams come true with lifting her up so that she could fulfill the call of God that's on her life, the mission for which she has been born. It's your job as a husband and as a man to empower her, to give place for her, to be her champion. Because listen, Jesus has redeemed you. Jesus on that cross released something that echoed all throughout and brought redemption to everything that Adam touched, including this subservient role. Does this make sense this morning? Jesus, I bless these ladies and these men, and I'm asking that you would crash upon our culture that you would reverse all of the impact of the Adamic curse. That you would empower women just as you have designed to co-lead, to co-reign, to co-subdue, to go and create nations, to lead nations, to lead churches, to plant churches. I'm asking that you would breathe on this issue, that you would break the yoke of the enemy that has made it his sole purpose to go after these, to suppress them and to keep them from being able to enter into their calling and their God-given gifts and talents. I'm asking that you would move, that this would be the last generation where these things are even an issue. And that you would make us a church that recognizes your redemption and partners with your empowerment. That we collectively would be the servants of all. And that this place would become great because of us partnering with you in your ways. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to contact us or would like more information about our church or additional podcasts or resources, please visit us online at harvestwarrensburg.com. We hope to see you soon.